Welcome to the European Greens podcast, where we talk about the way forward to a greener and fairer Europe, together with green leaders and activists. The European Greens are a European political party that brings together national parties sharing the same green values, like democracy, feminism, support of LGBTQ+, and climate action. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and together, let's green our future. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Green Talking Heads on Health. In today's episode, we were honored to host Petra de Sauter, who's the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Public Administration, Public Enterprises, Telecommunication and the Postal Services. After a long career as a gynecologist, Petra entered politics in 2014 and in 2019, she was elected to the European Parliament as the leading candidate for her party, Grown, the Flemish Green Party. Petra was also a member on the Committee of the Environment and Public Health, the Committee on Employment and Social Affairs, and was the first Green Chair of the Committee on the Internal Market and Consumer Protection. As you will hear, Petra is very passionate and knowledgeable on many different topics, including health, and she's also committed to a social equitable Europe. During this very enlightening and transparent conversation, we will discuss the lesson learned from the EU and national responses to COVID-19, the need for accountability around the lack of transparency of the pharma industry and the importance of solidarity among member states of the European Union. So enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Petra de Suter, for having accepted to be part of Green Talking Heads. We're super happy to have you. Um, Yes. And so to get started, I'd like to, you know, bring some context a little bit um, uh, in the COVID-19 response situation. And if we can just, you know, take a, take a step back a little bit. So after more than, uh, yeah, one year and a half, which feels like actually much, many more years of the outbreak of COVID-19, which has been the most challenging health crisis of the last century, uh, what would you say is, would be the, the first political assessment of the role of the European Union on one side and also of national governments on the other side in managing uh, the crisis? Mm-hmm. Like, what would you say are the main uh, lessons learned? Thank you, Sarah. I think it's uh, an important and interesting question, of course. Um, we have learned quite some lessons, and I must say, while we're still in the middle of, uh, of the crisis, huh, it's not sure when we will get out of it. This is uh, the disappointment we all share, I suppose. Despite the vaccines, uh, we're not, uh, not there yet. But I, w- I might say that uh, from the beginning, for us, it has been clear that um, we have, you know, moved much too far into a way of uh, efficacy and austerity thinking um, in healthcare in in uh, in general. We really need to invest in healthcare to build resilience in health w- workforce in what we need um, for crisis like that. We were not prepared. It's it's clear that by privatizing and commercializing healthcare, which in the private sector did not save us, did not rescue us in this kind of crisis. It's always the public sector that needs to solve things when there are serious crises. So we need to really invest and not look at health as a purely economic activity, which uh, has been the evolution in the last decades, I would say, in most of the European countries. Um, now, we, uh, from the Belgian perspective, um, we have decided forming this new government, which is now one year in place. We immediately have decided to heavily reinvest in healthcare uh, and in the future of the health workforce. So, so this is lesson number one. This, the second thing is um, mental health. 
because um, if if uh, if there has been one health crisis with COVID, we know there has been a second one, which is a mental health crisis. A lot of people have suffered terribly from lockdowns, from all the measures and so on. And I'm mainly thinking or specifically thinking about young people here that during the, the most uh, important uh, phase of their development uh, have have uh, had to adapt to uh, to new to measures that were absolutely not compatible to to the life that young people should have so uh, mental health is very important and again we also have to invest uh, much more in the future in that area we have also seen a lot of you know child abuse partner violence and so on during uh, the the covid crisis again this is something that uh, we have to take much more seriously maybe a more green perspective as well is prevention we very well know how this crisis has uh, started where it came from and we have lost the link between environment and health. We have lost the idea of, uh, I would say, the, the principle of one health. Everything is connected, our food, our way of living, biodiversity, um, uh, the habitat, wildlife habitat, and so on. And this is how this uh, pandemic, uh, who is uh, zoonosis, that means it's an infection from animals, has jumped to the human. So, and of course, the way, the globalized way of traveling and working but that, that's the analysis we already made uh, quite early in, in the pandemic. I think another issue is health in all policies. That means variant on the one health principle, but that means that whatever policy we determine, whether it is uh, food, agricultural, workplace, whatever, always take health into consideration, make sure that we protect the well-being and the health of people in all the policy decisions that that we made. And then finally, maybe at the European level, yeah, cooperation, collaboration, coordination, all the words that we know that have a little bit failed in the beginning and where Europe has tried to do its best. But, well, if you don't have the competence, if you don't have the mandate from the member states, you are very limited in, in what you can do. But we need to strengthen that coordination uh, specifically in, in terms of crisis management and also strengthen the public health systems throughout Europe because the weakest system within the Union, of course, weakens the whole European Union. So we have to invest in health systems all over e the EU. And then maybe just to end from the European perspective, it should not be uh, Europe first. We need a global perspective. We know that the pandemic is around in all countries around the, the globe and we will all be protected if everybody is protected. So the vaccine policy, uh, we'll come back to that, I suppose, um, I think has failed. Uh, we have been thinking of ourselves first. Now we're talking about a third uh, shot for the vaccine, whereas uh, the majority of, of people in the world didn't even have a first shot. So uh, this this is really a, an ethical an ethical problem that, uh, well, we're, we have not done enough uh, but again, we'll come back uh, to that. For my own country, because you also asked the, the national perspective, we didn't take a very good start, but I think most countries didn't know what happened and went into lockdowns and took quite some some difficult and, and maybe uh, wrong decisions at the beginning. But since the second wave last year in October, we have moved from more crisis management um, to risk-based management, you know, in a way trying to live with the virus without closing the whole society, without closing businesses, schools, and so on, and, uh, and also the social life of people, which we did in the first wave, by the way. 
um, with, with full lockdowns and so on. We put in place uh, a coordination agency, if you want, which we call the COVID commissariat with a, commiss- with, with a commissioner for COVID that had to coordinate everything in the country because Belgium is a complicated country with different levels of competencies that have to work together, which also is not always very easy. Um, and we did well uh, in terms of vaccination. We had a, a slow start, but finally now we are amongst the best vaccinated countries in the EU. Uh, but in this fourth wave that we are experiencing now, unfortunately, we are again doing very badly with high figures of hospitalizations and even mortality. So you can see that all over the EU, all countries try to cope in one way or another. Um, some make good decisions, some make less good decisions. Um, only history will tell what approach finally has been the best one. We try to do uh, the best we can, but we struggle a lot with the, the fight between public health and trying to protect the people's health and individual liberties and freedoms. If you go into a lockdown, you know you ha- you, you restrain the freedom of people. Uh, so this equilibrium, this balance was very difficult and also the legal basis to do so. Um, was not easy to find and gave a lot of debate, of course, in Parliament for all the measures that that we took. So that's a little bit what I would say from the Belgian perspective. Um, and again, uh, only history will tell what the best approach would have been um, and how we have to prepare. And that's the lessons we have to take with us, how we have to prepare for maybe future crisis uh, in, in terms of public health. We don't know if pandemics cannot... Uh, come back, uh, and also not how long this one will actually last if there is new variants and so on. We don't have a crystal ball to look into the future, but we have to be prepared. Exactly. And thank you so much for this super uh, complete overview. Uh, many of the points we're going to come back to, and one of them that you mentioned is around the cooperation of different member states. Actually, one of the, the, the things, one of the many things that the EU has been criticized for is having failed to enforcing better cooperation, coordination and solidarity among its member states to build, you know, a better and more resilient response. And uh, yeah, I'm wondering if, if the EU even have such power to create solid multilateralism as, as response to the pandemic versus the increased sovereignty that we observed in certain countries and, and what could have been done differently when it comes to that. Well, another important question, of course, maybe first of all, saying that if we look back uh, over the last one and a half half years, the EU, I think, has tried to do uh, certain things in terms of coordination and so on, opening up borders after an initial uh, closure of borders, um, coordinating the development of uh, vaccines. The EU has done some good work um, in helping developing vaccines and uh, organizing advanced uh, purchase agreements with uh, companies, of course. We can criticize these and we will because uh, uh, when I was in the European Parliament, um, we were very, uh, very uh, critical about these agreements, which were secret agreements and so on. And um, we probably gave a lot to the pharmaceutical companies without asking uh, a lot back. But uh, at least we had some organized um, vaccine strategy and coordination. And the commission has also announced that there would be some more coordination at the EU level and some health emergency preparedness and response authority, as it's called, the HERA authority that will start. We see some consciousness of uh, bringing back 
I would say, or bringing some of the competencies for health to the to the EU level specifically. If if we're talking about uh, crisis and the collaboration or the coordination around that, that brings me to the word solidarity. Of course, uh, we first needed it in within the EU context, where uh, one member state had uh, production of mouth masks. Another one didn't have enough, but they had ventilators. I mean, it's clear that uh, if you work together, you can uh, you can get much uh, further. In the beginning, the member states really wanted their own mouth masks and and their own ventilators, and there was competition, um, which doesn't bring us uh, uh, much further, of course. Uh, so, working together between different healthcare systems is also uh, an important one at the EU level. Although, why is this national competence? Uh, because uh, you know, healthcare is organized in a, in a way of uh, social security systems, solidarity systems, and so on, which are quite different between member states. So it is very difficult to coordinate that or to harmonize that at the EU level. And member states don't want that. You have the Scandinavian model for social security. You have other models. I have my model in Belgium, the German model and so on, and the French. Um, so it, it, I understand. Now, being on the other side, because I'm now if I go to the councils uh, representing my own uh, country, I can understand the difficulties in harmonizing everything. Um, I'm not sure, for instance, if we want to have a harmonized policy in the EU on LGBT rights, if you see what happens in Poland and Hungary and so on. It could uh, not raise the bar, but bring the bar down. So we have to be careful with this uh, principle. But but for health, of course, again, healthcare systems, uh, even if they're organized and financed in different ways, um, they should be made more resilient for crises that cross borders because the virus doesn't respect uh, borders, that's for clear. So um, I think we need an EU to act as a, as a forum for cooperation, setting standards. That's an important one as a, a force, as a multiplier for uh, national efforts so that uh, together we can do more than uh, member states uh, separately. Um, we, need that, we know that even the most Im important, most uh, the biggest member states cannot cope on their own and maintain their sovereignty in, uh, in terms of... Uh, public health crisis and and, uh, and global crisis if they do not work together with other member states. And of course, at the larger level, that is, uh, is the same thing for the EU in, uh, in, in a global perspective, uh, the same thing as within the EU. Um, what we know also is that European populations actually ask that the EU does more uh, in the domain of health. 70% of uh, EU citizens have asked, even before the COVID crisis, that the EU would do more for their health. So it's a, it's really a subject, it's a domain that is open for the EU to invest more and maybe also to convince people that the, the, the European idea, the European collaboration, uh, the European Union itself is, is really a project that is there to protect them, to do something for them rather than um, defend other interests because that's the, the impression most people have uh, from the EU uh, still today. So I think the EU can do a lot, that there is a momentum for this, that people understand in this COVID crisis that it might be a good idea to join forces and to give mandate to the EU to, to do more in terms of coordination. And it also will help people, um, you know, feel better about what the European Union can do for themselves as individuals. Mm, indeed. 
Super, thank you for that. Uh, so I'd like to, uh, and you touched on that a little bit, I'd like to go back to the access to vaccination um, and uh, yes, who produces, who has, who has access and, and, and all of this. So just for, for context, pandemic-related priorities identified by uh, Ursula von der Leyen in her 2021 uh, State of the Union speech is strengthening the EU preparedness and resilience through uh, enhanced innovation, research capacity, private knowledge uh, on one hand, and wrapping up COVID-19 vaccination in low-income nations around the world. So uh, 61% of the EU population is fully vaccinated, while the share mm-hmm. is about only 1% in, in the global south. So what would you say, you know, is the best solution between assisting other nations by essentially giving them the vaccine or supporting them with tangible resources to, to produce those themselves? Uh, yes, another important question. Um, and I don't, I will not answer in a, in a, in a, binary way, if you want, um, because that would be too easy. Um, it's complicated. First of all, investments in research, in also pharmaceutical research, is important. It's a good thing. And financing research with public money, as we have done now for vaccines in COVID, must imply, for me that's clear, that um, that the results of the research indeed should be accessible for all, because they have been invested with public money. Um, we already talked about the contracts, uh, the advanced purchase agreements for the vaccines uh, a moment ago. I think uh, the EU, the, the Commission, and also national governments implied should have made clear conditions uh, regarding transparency, regarding affordability and accessibility for vaccines um, in these contracts with the pharmaceutical sector. We have asked for that from the European Parliament side uh, from the beginning. And um, we don't think that, um, well, that the European Commission listened or that the member states listened. So that that is really a bit of a disappointment. On the other hand, um, and this is what Ursula von der Leyen, of course, says, we will donate to COVAX and other initiatives. That's good. But uh, we know that these promises are mainly, are, are not always uh, kept um, because in case of a new wave, like we see now, Western countries will also want the vaccines for themselves, for the third shots, uh, rather than, than giving them to COVAX. So we need something more structural uh, so that the, the production of vaccines can take place in the countries of the Global South. Uh, and the only way to do that is through uh, the, a TRIPS waiver, of course, by giving up IP, giving up the patents, and making sure that um, countries that need these vaccines uh, get also production uh, capacity to to really produce them. Because the the argument that I hear in my own government by my colleagues not wanting to give up the patents uh, to waive. Um, they say, well, you can't do anything with, with, uh, you know, the formula, uh, if you, if you give, uh, give away the patent, uh, to these countries because they don't have the capacity to, pr- to produce the vaccines. First of all, it's not true. We know that in India, for instance, there is a production capacity and they have already proven it, by the way. There is now a vaccine that is globally approved for uh, COVID. South Africa has has the means of producing. A lot of countries can do that. 
So it is really about giving up uh, the, the patents. And I understand the, the reason why the patent is important to preserve uh, investment in research and development and innovation. But in this case, we are, de we are dealing with a global crisis and we have invested a lot of public money again in the development of vaccines. So I think as an exception, maybe not as a rule, but in this case, at least as an exception, um, we, we could have gone uh, further. We know that uh, the whole issue about patents in drug development uh, has some side effects and some, you know, negative uh, aspects. We know that companies will only invest in the research and development of drugs that will be profitable for them. They will not invest in rare diseases unless they know that there will be paid a lot of public money for these drugs. Otherwise, they will just go for the, the blockbusters, if you want, that have... Um, a lot of uh, profit, market profit. So um, we also know some slight changes in a molecule can lead to a new patent and another protection for uh, a, a long period of time. So that there are a lot of, of negative aspects about patents. Um, and um, I personally believe that we might want to move and that is beyond COVID. For COVID, really, I think there should be a, a, a waiver of, of a TRIPS waiver uh, and, and uh, we shouldn't wait with, with that. But in general, for drug dev development, I think we, we should go towards a delinkage uh, between research and development on one hand and the production of drugs on the other hand. And then from the public side, you could decide in what research and development you want to invest and pay a price for that. But then the production of the drug itself can be done by other parties. That's what is called the delinkage uh, model uh, by where we decouple the R&D uh, costs from the market price of, of the product. So this, this might be a model for the future um, in drug development. But in the first place, we should make the, the patents um, the drugs uh, for COVID available to uh, to all the countries in the world that that might need them, and it's not only charity, you know, it's not only uh, a humanitarian decision. It is also for for Western countries out of self interest to do so. As long as the whole world population is not vac vaccinated, we will see new variants, and these new variants will come to Western European and, and American and, and uh, you know so called Western countries and reinfect us uh, again and again and we will only get rid of covid and all the new variants that might co might come if we will all be vaccinated and protected then the virus might go away and experts now tell us that could really be a matter of years so the faster we can vaccinate the, the whole world population that needs it, the better it will be also for us um, in, in the Western countries. Mm, yeah, and I really, I really like the, the delinkage approach um, that you mentioned. And I'd just like to uh, go back a little bit on the, on the role of, of pharma. So two of our actually previous guests, uh, Gaël Krikorian, who's a researcher and activist on public health, and uh, Yanis Natsis, who's a policy manager of Universal Access and Affordable medicines at the European Public Health Alliance have both um, highlighted the importance to treat health um, as a public or even common good and the need to improve the, the transparency of markets, vaccines and other health products. And they've also talked about the opacity of the pharma industry. I mean, pharma is obviously a very powerful sector holding a very heavy policy influence. 
And and uh, I'd like to know as a policymaker, do you think that's that's the reason why we can sometimes observe a lack of political will to have more democratic control over the pharmaceutical sector? And if not, like what, what do you think are the reasons um, behind that? Yeah, another good question. Um, and Belgium is a nice country that can serve as an example because we have a very strong pharmaceutical industry. You know that uh, uh, we are also vaccine developers and producers. Um, and that's why the pharmaceutical industry in our country, but in other European countries as well, is very much protected. And as soon as they will protest, politicians will listen to them uh, because they represent a lot of um, economic profit and, and uh, workforce and so on. So, um, yeah, we don't have enough political will. And I will tell you why we should, because uh, we already discussed in the previous question, but... The pharmaceutical industry is not an industry as another industry. That means if you compare it with a car industry, you know, you as a consumer, you want to buy a car, you can pay price, there is competition on the market, you pay for that goods and you pay the price probably that it is uh, worth. And that's how markets work, you know, uh, offer and demand and so on. In the pharmacy, pharmaceutical industry, it works quite differently. First of all, the industry chooses in what drugs to uh, to to you know do the research and develop the drugs and bring to the market um, you could say well it it will be the market that decides of course it, there is no market that decides it is the drugs that are most profitable that will be prioritized so you as a patient you don't have a choice in what disease you get and what drug you need you go to the doctor and the doctor prescribes you a certain drug you have zero choice the doctor takes little responsibility because, you know, he is paid anyhow and the drug is paid by third parties, either by social security or private in, uh, insurance companies, depending on the system in your country. So you as a patient have no choice, neither about the, the, the choice of medicine you get, nor the price you pay. The prices are set, you know, at at levels that the patient and the doctor have nothing to do with, but usually between governments uh, or or insurance companies and the industry themselves. So this is not an industry that works in a market of um, supply and demand. <clears throat> it's a completely different model. So it should be regulated in a completely different way. I mean, for me, that's very clear. Um, so we should, as authorities, decide what drugs do we need for our population, for the patients? What drugs do we want to invest in so that we're sure that they will be developed? What price are we willing to pay for that? So we should take much more initiative and, um, you know, be much stronger in the negotiations with the pharmaceutical sector than we usually are. Now, today, um, the, the relationship between the authorities and the sector, the pharmaceutical sector, is, is opposite. Now it is the pharmaceutical sector that comes to governments and, uh, you know, poses their demands and they say, we want this and we want that. We have this drug. And uh, it's a very, it's a drug for rare disease in young children. And we want you to pay one and a half million euros for it. And governments, you know, politicians, it's difficult to say in the public opinion, we don't pay that and this child will die. So they are blackmailing in a way. Uh, I'm not saying that they're all the same and that they're all have a lack of responsibility, but it is a wrong model to consider the pharmaceutical industry as any other industry operating in a free market.
It simply doesn't work like that. We are investing heavily. A lot of public money goes in there. A lot of drugs are developed further uh, going uh, or building on research that is done in in universities, in uh, public institutions, with public money, <clears throat> with research money that we uh, we give them. <clears throat> Sorry, and then a new molecule is developed and then it goes uh, some startup and then it, it is bought by a big company and, and they are then marketing the drug and, and having the profits and setting the, the standards as they like. So, I mean, this is what is profoundly wrong in the pharmaceutical uh, industry or in the, in this sector as compared to any other sector where the free market rules uh, apply. For COVID, it is clear again, we had that with um, uh, AIDS drugs so many years ago. There was a TRIPS waiver at a certain moment and countries could have these drugs at a very lower lower price uh, than, than Western countries. We should absolutely do the same thing for COVID vaccines and it's in the interest uh, of, of us all. So I hope, um, I hope that we'll, we can be able to do that because the initiatives that we had like the, the CTAP, uh, the COVID Technology uh, Access Pool and COVAX, um, they have been on on a, on a free basis. The industry could could participate, but as long as we don't have a compulsory system, it it will definitely it will not work. And and also countries will always look after their own interests first, uh, rather than looking after the interests of of the global south. Thank you so much for this very clear and transparent uh, answer. I would like to come back on recovery and resilience because you mentioned resilience earlier, which I think is a very important part of, of the, the crisis that we're part of. So the recovery and resilience facility is the largest component uh, of next generation EU. So for listeners who might not know about this, so that's the, the European Union's landmark instrument for recovery from the, the coronavirus pandemic. So in order to receive support from the Recovery and Resilience Facility, member states um, are asked to set out a coherent package of projects, reforms and investments in six different policy areas, including health and resilience. And what we're trying to analyze here is how do national plans adequately address um, the need to strengthen our healthcare systems to make them more robust and resilient. And that means, for example, enhanced investments in health uh, research, local production and supply. Uh, and if you could also, by talking about that, taking us through the case of uh, Belgium. Yes, um, another good question, of course, because the, the whole uh, recovery resilience facility was also meant to get us out of the economic crisis that uh, that COVID uh, brought us in um, and to really transition to a new industry, new future, which is green and digital. Actually, that was already the plan of the European Commission before the COVID crisis. So this COVID crisis is actually also an opportunity to accelerate um, these plans. Now, I will tell you a little bit about uh, the, the RRF and, and what Belgium intends to do. Uh, we really managed well, I think, to um, to stay within the the purpose of going for green and digital projects. And actually, I, I, it's not without pride that I say that in our federal Belgian government, more than fifty percent of all the projects uh, will be green and sustainable. 
And that's thanks to the pressure that uh, the green parties in government have uh, have given. So I think we can we can be happy about that. And we're talking about energy. We're talking about uh, mobility. We're also talking about digital uh, transition, but it should be a sustainable digital transition. I want to emphasize that because often green and digital are proposed as being opposite. They should not be opposite. They may not be opposite because then uh, we don't want to the, to go in a more digital world if it is a less sustainable. It should be hand in hand. They should go hand in hand. And I think it's possible, but we have to be watchful there. However, and that's your question, and then I need to to, um, to disappoint uh, you a little bit and uh, myself. Um, very little, very little investment will be done into health in the RRF uh, funding that we got and that we will use. So yes, sustainability, digital transition, mobility, energy transition, and so on. Health, well, you could say indirectly, of course, if you go towards more sustainable, uh, you know, uh, society and from the health, the one health principle, it will also, of course, uh, be better for the health of our population. But we're not going to invest in health infrastructure and in health workforce, healthcare in itself. That has not been a priority. Now, maybe an explanation is that we already had made that decision. I just told you that also. So that when we started this government, we would invest a lot of money into healthcare and um, reform the healthcare system and so on. So we did not need, that's maybe the answer and the privilege that we had in Belgium, we did not need the RRF, the European money for doing so. So... Um, also, yeah, there are some projects in health research, but quite little. And also in the digital projects, of course, there, there will be um, uh, e-health uh, projects that, that are part of the digital um, RRF projects. But, um, well, it, it could have been more if you ask me, but we did a lot besides this uh, recovery and resilience um, uh, projects that uh, that you um, are funding. In total, there are 87 investment and 34 reform projects, which are quite ambitious. As Greens, we're very happy with what we are going to do with this money in Belgium, and the health and healthcare investments are going to be done with, uh, with our own uh, federal investments that we make. Petra, thank you so much. This is the end of the episode and the last questions okay. that I had. But yeah, if you have any other last words that you want our listeners uh, to remember or to take action on, uh, now is the time. Well, I think that we Greens and also at European level, we always have been champions in uh, the One Health principle, investing in health and also bringing this to the, the European level. So I just, uh, I think what I said fits, I suppose, in, in the view that we have and that we all try to achieve everyone at uh, his or her own level and competence. Um, and now I'm doing this in the Belgian federal level um, uh, government, I would say, but um, yeah, we all continue to fight the same struggle and um, I hope that that we will manage. You can see that more and more Greens are in governments in the EU. So our message and our our vision of the world is uh, is is more and more successful. Of course, if you look at climate change and what happens there, also future generations will uh, will understand that we are the ones that are working for they for them for their future, and uh, not for the vested interests that uh, that have been served for so long already. 
Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of The Green Talking Heads with Petra de Sutter. I hope you enjoyed all the insights that she shared. I find her to be such an impressive green leader that has a very honest take on a lot of key issues that impact the lives of EU citizens. And it truly has been a real pleasure recording with her. Entering 2022 as a new COVID-19 year, I really hope a lot of member states can use her wisdom to do better and hopefully create better pandemic management harmony. As always, make sure to subscribe to The Green Talking Heads wherever you love listening to your podcast, share this episode around you, interact with us on social media through the Instagram of the European Greens, for example, and stay on the lookout for upcoming episodes. Thanks and stay tuned. Mm-hmm.